0: climate watch is cgtn radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change we have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue listen to climate watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home
1: ideas matter ideas matter this is dialogue
0: hello and welcome to dialogue i'm chu chinduo Despite the differences in civilization and values, the G20 brings together the world's major economies to seek common ground for development. So, through promoting civilizational exchanges and mutual learning, what can we expect from this year's G20 summit to solve global rifts? What should be done to avoid a clash of civilizations? and what needs to be done to enhance the voice and representation of the Global South in the international arena. To find out more, I'm glad to be joined by Huang Jin, University Professor from Shanghai International Studies University, Professor Mohan Kumar, Director of the Jindao Global Center for G20 Studies, and also former Indian Ambassador to France and Bahrain. Join Ross, senior fellow from the Chungyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China, and Saliman al-Azari, Saudi geopolitical researcher. Welcome to Dialogue. We'll start with the controversy surrounding the name of the host country, India or Bharat. Uh, Professor Mohan Kumar, we'll start with you. You What's in the name here?
1: Yeah, I I want to thank uh, CGTN for having me. It's my first time and I'm Happy to be part of this uh, illustrious panel. You put together a very fine set of people, as far as I can see. So my first reaction to your question is, a rose smells as sweet with any other name. So um, I don't think the name should matter really. It's a bit of a non-controversy. The Indian constitution actually has both India and Bharat. And as my Saudi colleague and friend said, um, Bharat is a name that people use in everyday conversation. And um, I think um, as long, um, from my perspective, as long as I am allowed to use whatever name I like, Indians like freedom, Indians like choice. So as long as I am allowed to use whatever name I prefer, I think that's fine. So it should really not be anything more than a controversy. Frankly, it shouldn't be a controversy at all. And at this point of time, I don't think a decision has been taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Professor,
0: you know, there is... a. Um Uh, One quote actually by, uh, you know, BJP, the ruling party, a politician, uh, unnamed, uh, told an Indian broadcaster, you know, said that uh, the word India is an abuse given to us by the British, whereas the word Bharat is a symbol of our culture.
1: What's your response? So so you'll have people disagreeing with that. India is a rough and tumble democracy people are entitled to their views, and that's the view of that particular gentleman. I wouldn't necessarily see it that way. A lot of Indians wouldn't see it necessarily that way. And that is why I think as long as Indians have a choice to call their country whatever they want, it should be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: well, John Ross, you know, uh, it's said that, you know, uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, indeed think that, you know, there there's a need of efforts to Uh, quote, liberate ourselves from the slavery mindset. Uh, Is the talk of name or change of name part of that effort?
2: Well, as I think the British rule of India is one of the biggest crimes in the whole of human history, I think the best thing that Britain can do is keep out of the matter. So I'm not going to say anything about it at all. It's entirely up to the people of India to decide.
0: Yeah, that, oh, well, uh, anyway, um, you know, when we talk about the name the, it's about the like a mixture of uh, different elements, you know, colonialism, legacy, culture, uh, history. Um, so of course, you know, here G20 uh, brings together uh, a broad representation of uh, not only the 20 largest economies, but also countries with different history, different uh, civilization, culture, and languages, you know, political systems here. And uh, here's one point actually, it's really about you know, how we treat differences. Should we like, uh, you know, somehow appreciate and uh, embrace the differences or condemn the differences? Huang Jing.
3: I think that uh, the differences is a way of life. We, this this world is so beautiful because we're all different. So I think the matter is how much, number one, how much we can tolerate each other and respect each other on their own rights. Uh, number two, uh, do we want to, you know, practice so-called double standard uh, on this last but not the least? I think that the tolerance does not mean that we agree to disagree, but means we know we are different. That's why I try my best. To understand to try to put myself in your shoes so to understand where you come from then we can have a better understanding and confidence building
0: so differences is a way of life again i, I we should all appreciate it so mr Al, so, uh, i'm sorry you know at the same time well uh, acknowledging the differences you know uh, in the background uh, obviously for the largest economies uh, there's uh, a need for them to work together uh for unity uh i mean f- for better dealing with the global challenges and uh, economically and politically. And how can they do that?
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and hi to all the respectful guests with you. I think one of the best answers to that is to go back to the slogan that India (coughs) has uh, written with regards to their G20. Uh, They said it and they called it one earth one family one future and that is actually uh, important to uh, emphasize we should not forget that the G20 members represent more than 80% of the world's total economic output uh, 75% of uh, global trade and 60% 60% of uh, of uh, earth of the earth uh, population so i think the responsibility on these countries are humongous and i think we really need to work Together to, to 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 take the world to a better place, rather than just being in constant conflict with each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the cultural exchanges uh, and differences uh, and the attitudes to treat the differences, Huang Jing. Uh, if you look at China and India, uh, India, the hosting country of G20, uh, if you look at the long history of exchanges between the two countries, uh, you see uh, there's a, there's a lot in common. There's a lot of learning from each other. Uh, there's a similarity in terms of the Chinese side, you know, uh, putting forward the initiative, a global civilization initiative. Basically, it stresses very much about uh, equality, respect, and learning from each other. And even the theme, you know, as uh, our guest mentioned, one earth, one family, one future, uh, which is kind of similar to the Chinese idea of, uh, um, you know, a, a common community uh, for, with a shared responsibility, shared system for the, for the main hand. Uh, and, of course, both countries also are calling for Say multilateralism, genuine multilateralism, or reformed multilateralism. Uh, so, what kind of a multilateralism for say China and India for the Global South, or is it different from say the multilateralism in the eyes of Western countries? I think that
3: multilateralism depends how you look at it. I think from India's point of view, if I understand right, or from China's point of view, I think materialism, first and foremost, means we are all equal. We should respect each other on equal footing. Secondly, we should all tolerate this kind of differences between us. Exactly because we're equal, that's why we cannot say that which one is better, which one is worse. Last but not the least, if there's any differences I want to point out between the so-called global South multilateralism and the so-called Western materialism, I think there is a conscious or subconscious kind of arrogance, or, or kind of me-centered uh, uh, kind of uh, feature in the in the in the, uh, for example, G7 groups. Uh, they believe they are the ones who should uh, be the kind of leaders, or even masters of the world. Uh, the center, the, the world should centered among them. Uh, uh, even though this is uh, uh, just as I say, m- might be subconscious, but it is very clear, a very good demonstration of this that I'm better than you, this kind of mentality that uh, they try to, you know, apply double standard when they talk about multilateralism when they're dealing with others, Uh, especially uh, for example, when they talk about universal, universal values. Values are good. We all have our values, but we're similar to each other on some good part of those values. But the problem is that, you know, double standard or hypocrisy was kind of applied when they try to use this kind of multilateral approach, all the, the values uh, to judge uh, on each other. Uh, in other words, multilateralism means we do not make judgment on others just because I think it is right. And also it means that since we're all equal, then we should try to understand each other. Uh, that is, we are fundamentally not difference. In other words, there are difference in degrees. I agree, but they might, they should not be, and there, there aren't, there is not difference in kind uh, in our human beings because we all live in the same village. We are all the same species. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, join, you know, how do you see? Uh, you know, people would say, you know, global civilization initiative by the Chinese side is a response to the theory of. Uh, Clash of civilization, which stresses the differences of different civilization, and ultimately that kind of difference will lead to a clash.
2: Well, I, I don't think it's a response to it. I think it's developed from more fundamental things. But nevertheless, it cl- clearly counterposes itself to to such a such a conception. I mean, the fundamental point that made by Xi Jinping is that as um, it is the differences between countries. Actually, strange enough or it's very clear to an economist, which are very beneficial. Um, I mean, if you take my own country, one of the most delightful things I've seen in my life is in 1950, go back to the 1950s, it was a very grey country. We ate the same food um, on the same day of the week. Uh, We had no cultures. Now it's become a much more interesting place to be uh, because we've got huge numbers of cultures which are there. And um, sometimes you have a little bit of a culture shock I know in the 1950s, people said, oh, well, we don't know about this curry. And now curry is more popular than fish and chips in Britain. You know, that's way, the way things go. And um, I think that's the same for other countries. The, the decisive thing is that what countries get voluntarily from other people? If, if you take my country, right, every, every country in the world teaches the mathematics of Newton. Everybody, Every country in the world teaches the theory of evolution of Darwin. Every country in the world likes Shakespeare. They like that we learn things from india we learn things from china we learn things from other countries what they don't want is they don't want visits from gunships which is the types of things that my country used to engage in they don't want unilateral economic sanctions they want to have the freedom to decide what they want to learn from other countries and they'll find out as president xi jinping said if they do that their their own society will be greatly enriched by the things which it learns from other countries, that so of course this is counterposed to the clash of civilizations, but it wasn't developed to oppose such a stupid theory. But it it was opposed from forward for more fundamental reasons. But of course it opposes this theory.
0: Professor Mohan Kumar, you know, you were nodding your heads while John Ross is speaking. So you do agree with, uh, you know, the idea like, uh, you know, different civilization, Uh, there are differences, but uh, we should respect the differences and learn from each other and
1: uh, and then enhance ourselves. No, I was uh, nodding vigorously to what uh, John was saying, if I'm if I can call you John. Uh, please call me Mohan. Um, I, I absolutely agree with him. I, India is an interesting place because I come from the south, and people in the south are so different from people in Delhi. Uh, we eat rice; they eat wheat. We are vegetarians by and large; they eat meat. And I think I think it's diversity that uh, really makes uh, uh, the nation of India strong. And I suspect uh, what John says is absolutely true. I I, I my when I teach children or students in my school uh, or in the university, I basically tell them, can you accept a view that is not yours? Can you look at views that are not yours? Consider them from all aspects and then come to a reasoned judgment about what your views are. And that's what we say is critical thinking. And that's the only thing you can teach kids these days because everything else is bound to be either on the net or bound to be irrelevant. So I think that the only other thing I want to say, I also agree with my colleague from Saudi Arabia, by the way, he's absolutely right as well. But what I do want to say, though, on multilateralism is, you're right that China and India have a similar perspective. Having said that, China already has a seat in the high table. You're already a permanent member of the Security Council. We are not. So for us, reformed multilateralism means something different from your multilateralism. What we want to say, or what we mean when we say reformed multilateralism is that countries which which don't have a seat on the high table must have a voice. So that is the difference I would say. But but otherwise, I completely agree with my co-panelists. If you don't embrace differences, uh, it's very hard to manage them,
4: mm-hmm. and
1: they get into all sorts of controversies and arguments about me versus you, me versus you. You get into identity uh, issues within countries, between countries. So that's not such a good thing. So while we can say these things are good, uh, I, I don't want to be a pessimist, and no diplomat should be a pessimist in any case, but. The fact of the matter is the world is on the cusp of fragmentation, frankly. I I don't see too much of unity of purpose and so on. So uh, I don't believe you should apportion blame. So I wouldn't blame the West in its entirety, frankly. Uh, I think you have to look at the different actors, how they perform, how they act, and then see how in each circumstance we can try and figure out a solution. If you if you get into the trap of the West is bad, the East is better, then you get into the same problem of uh, how to how how it becomes more difficult to solve issues. So I, I would avoid labeling um, people, but I would very much say that uh, I agree with my two other colleagues and and also our Chinese colleague who spoke earlier about embracing differences. He's right. I think the key is. Can countries come together at a time like this? Because whether it is public health, whether it is cybersecurity, whether it is climate change, it is impossible for a country to do anything about it. Regardless of whether it is United States, China, India, it's not possible for any single country to do anything meaningful. So how do we come together setting aside the differences? Um, Some people want to say something on Ukraine. Others don't want to say something on Ukraine. Some people want the debt of lower income countries to be forgiven, some others don't. If you take sustainable development goals, the latest uh, global sustainable development report of the United Nations makes terrible reading. Half the world has been left behind. The world is off course. So what can the G20 do in these circumstances? That really is the existential question facing all of us today. How mm-hmm. to set aside differences, come together and work for the larger good?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, John, among the many problems we are going to solve or we are expected to solve, uh, one is mentioned earlier is the debt issue for developing countries, in particular low-income countries partly because, you know, the reliance on U.S. dollar. And then when the U.S. increase the interest uh, uh, and then that creates more uh, trouble for developing countries uh, like uh, paying the debt, uh, you know, that's more burdensome for some countries there. Is there anything we can do uh, to in that respect?
2: Well, the most fundamental thing is that needs to be a great deal of um, debt forgiveness. That's what's necessary to get the uh, get the global economy going again. We, we have a, a – I'd link the quest, this question about the dollar and the question of debt together. We have got a bad situation in the world at the present time whereby the U.S. is dependent upon import of capital from other countries as astonishing figures for the first half of this year, which is the United States actually – the depreciation of U.S. capital is greater than the creation of capital in the U.S. You've got a strange paradox. The world's number one capitalist country is not creating any capital. Um, This has only occurred twice before in US history. One was at the height of the Great Depression, um, and the other was during the international financial crisis. I mean, I was so astonished when I saw this figure for the first quarter. I wrote an article and said, look, we've got to be very cautious about this because let's see if it continues or it's just a freaky number. Well, but when the second quarter GDP results come out in the US, it's continuing. What this means is the world's largest economy is dependent upon capital that it's taken, we can say by the force, by the financial system, from other countries. It's like the, world, the US has become the world's largest economic parasite. Uh, and I know it's very shocking to people, but that is actually the situation. And this is intolerable, a situation whereby it is still almost the highest per capita GDP in the world, apart from a few tiny little countries that the world's hi- largest economy, with the highest per capita GDP, is being run by taking capital from other countries. This is impossible situation to continue. And, and that's what's behind the indebtedness. What should be happening, the traditional thing, should be, of course, that the high-income economies are able to export capital and undertake de- investment in the less developing countries. But at the present time, the less developed countries are subsidising the United States. This is, this is an extraordinary situation, and that's what creates the debt. And if we're going to get this system going again, we're going to have to have debt forgiveness for these less uh, developed countries as part of a, a, a reorganisation, hopefully a consensual one. I look forward to seeing what President Biden says. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm afraid there's been more talk than action, but I hope he will say something good. What we need is a peaceful reorganization of this international system. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Professor Mohan uh, Kumar here, you know, speak of the debt issue, speak of, uh, uh, you know, the debt issue in particular associated with these less developed countries. Uh, You know, it's important to have their voice heard. In that respect, uh, you know, we see the strong endorsement of uh, the G20 membership of African Union. Uh, from the U.S., from China, from India. India is working hard to include the African Union. In that respect, how important is it to have African Union as an independent member of G20 here?
1: Uh, I think it's uh, terribly important to have the African Union, no question about it, because a number of those countries are actually seriously indebted. I just want to say that the G20 has done a lot of good work on reforming the multilateral development banks and an Indian ex-finance secretary N.K. Singh have produced a roadmap for capital adequacy frameworks for these multilateral development banks. That's an excellent document. I just happened to read it last night. The second part of the report will be produced in October. They talk of massive recapitalization of the IMF and the World Bank. So I think it is extremely important what John says about debt forgiveness. May I also add that China is an important creditor. And let's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, get away from that. You have loaned a lot of money to low-income countries, and I think China's participation, China's cooperation, will be very, very important in getting a consensus paragraph on the debt forgiveness issue i think the g20 has done a good job by talking about debt service suspension initiative they're talking about a common debt framework and if they can also succeed in endorsing some of the roadmap recommendations for reforming the multilateral development banks and if china can chip in with whatever it can uh, then i think the, for me, that would have been the most important because you will recall that India had a voice of the Global South Summit in January 2023 with a virtual participation of 125 countries. I must tell you that the three most important things they talked about was debt and debt relief, second, food security, and third, climate change. Those were very, very important priorities outlined by the countries of the Global South. So one litmus test for me to determine whether the G20 is successful would be how it handles the debt issue. And as John says, I also look forward to the final outcome document on 10th of September.
0: Uh, Well, uh, Al Ansari, you know, last year, uh, just like this year, I think the people Uh, expect uh, deliverables, you know, something to to be delivered from the G20 summit. But last year, uh, because of the differences uh, over the Ukraine crisis, uh, you know, a joint statement was prevented. Uh, What about this year? You know, for European countries, for example, and Western countries in general, uh, their, uh, you know, a a preferable topic or their priority is really about the Ukraine crisis. But uh, for the countries from the global south, let's say, uh, their concern is really about uh, you know uh, the development and the climate change food crisis for example in what way can they say cooperate or can compromise and find a common voice in in terms of uh, the deliverables of the summit here
4: yeah you are absolutely right and it, it is actually unfortunate that a lot of analysts put an extensive focus on the hard power and military confrontations uh, and major conflicts that dynamics when they speak about the G20 meetings. And as the famous uh, phrase goes, if it bleeds, it leads. But in reality, the G20 as a whole, and since its uh, inception in 1999, is is mostly uh, an economic uh, uh, group. Definitely the Ukraine uh, conflict uh, with Russia, etc., uh, has overshadowed uh, the G20 the last uh, two or three years. Uh, G20 uh, uh, meetings. But I'm personally optimistic about the near end of of, of the Russian Ukraine conflict. Both nations have to seriously allow the countries that offered their mediation services to do their part. And I know that uh, Kiev uh, is Uh, definitely tied to the U.S. position, but inside the U.S. itself, we are seeing a rising momentum to to, to end the the war and look for peace uh, rather than incremental escalation. So that's why I'm kind of optimistic with that regard. And I'm actually happy that uh, we have been discussing mostly economic themes, because that's what should be discussed with regards to uh, the G20, and I'm actually proud of uh, the Kingdom of Arabia when they hosted the 2020 uh, G20, and they contributed mostly to the things that that you guys have mentioned with regards to the poor countries, they solidified uh, the, the global positions with uh, regards to these nations uh, in need uh, via uh, debt uh, forgiving that equals 40 billion dollars. And also the IMF uh, a couple of uh, uh, days ago they stated that Saudi Arabia had the fastest growing economy among the G20 uh, nations and 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 the lowest unemployment. Uh, 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 rate in history, and 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 one of the things that, that IMF mentioned was uh, debunking the latest reports about criticism of Aramco CO2 emissions, and it praised Aramco for taking green considerations. So seriously, we see a lot of uh, areas of cooperation that we can deal with our G20 and uh, friends, uh, because uh, this will show that we are serious in focusing a lot on our domestic affairs focusing a lot on bettering the lives of the people we have, focusing a lot on respecting each other and not to be in a position where we impose our uh, moral uh, codes uh, upon others because that's not gonna work and it's not gonna be uh, the major uh, thing that will work in the near future, specifically because we are seeing multilateralism to be taking real stance on the ground. It's not only hypothetical, it's something that we see. And I actually, I have one point that I want to uh, refer to with regards to the point about the IMF. Is it too late for the IMF and the World Bank, et cetera? I don't think so. I think they have a lot of uh, uh, areas where they can actually evolve and develop uh, their uh, uh, work. And one of the good things about multilateralism is the fact that when we see BRICS and we see all these uh, Shanghai cooperation, these are considered to be somehow in the eyes of some people that are competitors to the world bank and the, the global financial system that is led by the united states and the west well
0: on that note we come to the end of today's discussion many thanks to our guests you can also find us on the cgt app or on youtube i'm xin duo thanks for being with us see you next time